0: Sometimes people are really surprised to hear about what a meditation retreat experience is actually like, or to discover when people come to practice for the first time or haven't done a lot of practice, they're surprised to find what their experience is like, because it sounds like it ought to be different from what it is. When you think about it, take ten days to go and live in a lovely, warm monastery in the Massachusetts woods. The outside looks like a Christmas card. There's no intrusions, no one phones you on the telephone. There's none of the stresses of your job or your family. Nothing that you have to do, some very small job perhaps, but not much more than that. Really lovely food. It ought to be Totally mellow, not to be wonderful. And yet in fact, people discover, lo and behold, that what's part of their experience are thoughts and feelings that are covetous and lustful and greedy and needy and irritable and grumbly, and that they feel sleepy, that they feel restless that they feel doubtful, that they can't figure out what brought them here to begin with and what earthly good this will all do for them. Sometimes those very five same energies, neediness and irritability and insufficient energy and too much energy and doubtfulness, Those very five energies are called the difficulties of practice or the hindrances of practice. And sometimes people imagine that what that means is that they are the hindrances to good practice and that good practice would be practice in which those didn't arise. And actually I think that's a misunderstanding. What they are hindrances to is hindrance to clear seeing. But they are the stuff that practice is made of, because they're the stuff that mind is made of. Sometimes when people hear those, the list of five things, they sound suspiciously like lists of uh, moral transgressions that they've heard in other spiritual traditions. And indeed, even in Buddhism, they're sometimes called in ancient texts by a much more worrisome word like defilement. And then one really begins to feel morally incorrect, or suspect at least, if those feelings and thoughts arise. And I think I, I don't mind the word defilement at all, because I understand it in the same way as I understand hindrance, that when these uncomfortable, confusing, obscuring energies arise in the mind, they, in a sense, cloud or defile. The otherwise spotless and expansive, clear, brilliant nature of mind has nothing to do with moral rectitude. (coughs) I think if we took a test or had a vote or had people raise hands and said, how many people here in the course of these 48 hours have had at least one thought that was covetous or yearning or wanting, and one thought that was irritable or negative, at least one moment of sleepiness or cloudiness, at least one moment of restlessness, and at least, at the very least, one moment of doubt, that we probably have unanimous hands up on all of that. I'm pretty sure of it. Not because everybody here isn't a good practicer, but because that's the way minds operate. And so really that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about those five energies and I want to talk about three things about them. First, I want to talk about the fact, again, that they aren't extra. They aren't something to get rid of. That they are, they are the normal, albeit uncomfortable or obscuring, energies of the mind. They're part of the everyday apparatus of the mind. They're the way that the mind reacts in different situations in life as well as in retreats. It's the same. And the second thing I want to talk about is about whether or not they're difficulties. Because they aren't. They're just mind states. They're just manifestations of energy in the mind. They only become difficulties when we relate to them in an unskillful way. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then the third thing I want to talk about is skillful ways to relate to these difficult or uncomfortable or obscuring energies in the mind, kind of antidotes to these hindering energies. So there were the five that I already mentioned, the energy of needing, of wanting, of yearning, the energy of not wanting, of aversion, the energy of, well, actually the insufficient amount of energy in the mind, and an overly abundant quality of energy in the mind that leads to a sense of restlessness, and the energy of doubt in the mind. And really, when we examine all of those mind states, when we examine them as mind states, as energetic states, without the stories that usually come along with them, It's clear that that's all that they are. They're just energy states of different valences and different qualities. It's easier to relate to them if we (laughs) see them as energy states rather than stories. We have itchiness in the body or heat in the body. We don't particularly make a story about it. We say, I have itching or I have heat. The same sort of approach can be used to discover and look at the hindrances in the mind. When we take away the story from them, each of them, we discover that there's really a kind of energy that's manufactured that story or used that story as a way of expressing itself. So we'll do the first one, which is the energy of lust or desire. It's really an energy of Pulling mind It's an energy of insufficiency. It's an energy of the mind feeling like it needs something and looking around for something to slake its thirst. The story that often comes to my mind in this past year is that just a year ago this month, my uh, grandson Nathan was born, and his older sister was not quite two years old at that time. And even though uh, we certainly took every, uh, used every possibility we had to keep her comfortable and unworried about the fact that her mother had disappeared for a 24-hour period, and both of her grandparents and grandmothers, indeed all four of her grandparents were in attendance, taking care of her every possible need, and she really wasn't unhappy. She was just looking for something, and in the course of one particular time, she asked for a lot of things. I need that doll up there. Get the doll. Play with the doll two minutes. No, I need that book over there. Okay, get the book. Okay, I need juice. Get juice. Okay, now I need a cookie. Get a cookie. At one point, her other grandmother looked at me and said, you know, she's missing something. And that was exactly the story. And had she been able to speak, she would have been able to say that too. And she herself didn't know what it was that she was missing. But she was missing something, and something wasn't right. And she was trying all the habitual pathways to slaking that need. I'll have juice, I'll have a cookie, I'll have a doll, I'll have a book. And nothing was working, because nothing was really what she was missing. And all she really knew was that she needed something. It's that sort of neediness in the mind that's looking around for an object. In life we have that a lot and it stands between us and being happy a lot of the time. I give people a test sometimes. I say what if a magic wish granter appeared at this time and said, "Okay, I'm a magic wish granter. Tell me whatever you want and I'll give it to you." We could have a moment before, thought we were relatively all right, but in that moment we'd come up with something that stands between us and total happiness. I could have a better job, I'd like a new relationship, I'm a little unsure of my health, I'd like like to be reassured that my health is great. And to whatever degree we've got those things online, albeit even not intensively, they may actually be obscuring our ability to really be in this moment fully and happily. In a certain way, it would be unreasonable to imagine that we would all forget our wish list, or that we wouldn't know what it was in life that we'd really like to have, in a sense that keeps us trying in our life. It's not a problem to have things that we'd really like to have, like a new job or a new relationship, or reassurance about our health, It's only when the wanting of those obscures or clouds or makes it impossible to be happy in this moment without it, that it's a problem. When it clouds the current moment. A friend of mine with a very good sense of humor had cancer this year and he had um, a kind of radiation all over his body. And uh, he said at the end, that his uh, technicians at the end of his treatment had said to him, we find it very remarkable that you kept your good sense of humor throughout. And he was somewhat mystified by that. And he said, I don't know why. He said, I only had radiation. I didn't have a lobotomy. (laughs) But normally, normally in a sort of a dreadful situation like that, We really cannot be happy or cheerful in the moment because we haven't been reassured that at some future time we won't be all right. But when you think about it, nobody can be reassured that at a future time we'll be all right. Perhaps uh, we have that, I don't know that we have it more, but in California we're used to saying, who knows, in the next moment we could have an earthquake. So you never know what's gonna happen in the next moment to mortgage this moment of happiness of potential happiness with some possible uncomfortableness in the future. To cling to needing a reassurance is, for one thing, a folly, because we can't be reassured, and we've given away this moment. So it happens in life that um, the, 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 the energy of insufficiency can cloud the moment. It happens certainly in retreats, because that's life as well happens perhaps in often in, medit- in vipassana retreats because they're in a certain way more arduous than metta retreats. So there's often the thought, if only I could sit in a more comfortable way or if only I had a more comfortable zafu or a better shawl around me or if only I could uh, change the pace of my walking and walk around just as I felt like walking. If only I could have a massage or a back rub, then I'd be all right. That's what stands between me and clear seeing is a massage or a back rub. (laughs) Always one thing. In method practice where it's not so arduous, you could move, you could sit in a chair, you could relax, could walk at a more brisk pace, we also have if only if only I could embroider these boring phrases with more interesting interpretation, or if only I could rewrite them into a poem and then they'd be more interesting, or if only I could dwell on them and think about my benefactor or my friend and recall the many stories of our (laughs) lives together rather than just keeping with the phrases in this way. If I could think about my story of my life with these people, if I could speculate on what's happening here or reflect, if only I could do something other than just devotedly bringing myself back to these phrases. That's really the way desire arises in the course of metta retreats often. And even though this is really a spacious practice and there's a lot of room to make yourself comfortable, And a pleasant practice, it also calls for a certain amount of restraint, that there is a certain benefit to assiduously bringing oneself back to the saying of the phrases in a meticulous, careful way, connecting with the meaning of them, in a plain and ordinary way, requires a certain amount of restraint. It came to my mind yesterday as someone asked a question about changing or embroidering the phrases an old cartoon out of a Saturday Evening Post a hundred years ago of a Salvation Army band playing away and people playing little horns and people banging on the drums and a woman uh, with a tambourine but instead of just shaking the tambourine kind of kind of got it up over her head and she's moving her body in a way that looks more like a Tahitian hula than a Salvation Army shaking the tambourine. And the uh, caption on the bottom is the, the band conductor talking and saying, "Miss Riley, just shake the tambourine, please. And it came through my mind in thinking about embroidering the phrases. There's a way in which I'd like to say, just shake the tambourine. Just say the phrases with clarity and with devotion and with sincerity and with intention, but don't fool around with them too much. It's not good for the concentration. This is really a samadhi practice. You really want to develop concentration. And the less embroidered it is, the more directly the concentration augments and grows. And then one of the things that happens with a little bit of restraint and a little bit of devotion is that the concentration does grow. And then one of the aspects of developed concentration is the aspect of one-pointedness. The mind, the concentrated mind, has the faculty of one-pointedness, which means it doesn't flit around looking for other more interesting things. It just rests here. So that, in a sense, there needs to be a certain amount of restraint initially in practice so that concentration develops. After the concentration develops, there isn't so much need for conscious restraint because the mind by itself stays quite happily in a one-pointed way. So that's the first energy of mind, the energy of lust and desire and need. And the second energy is really the converse energy in the mind, if you think of valence of energy. The first one is a pulling energy, I need something. The second one is a pushing energy, I don't want this, I don't like it. It's kind of a, an aversive energy. It's like the mind spoiling for a fight. It's kind of a grumbly mind looking for something to be mad at. You know, we usually think otherwise. When we are mad at something, we think that it's that thing out there that has caused the anger to arise. Actually, aversion is in the eye of the beholder. Here's a story, or here's a a, a a kind of a test for you to see that that's true. I like to give people two situations. Here's a situation of you're in a relationship with somebody, and the relationship is really falling apart. You've both demoralized each other very much. Everybody is unhappy. Everyone is disappointed. Everybody is forlorn. Everybody has a long grudge list. And you go out to dinner one more time with this person to see if you can talk it over with them. And you go out to dinner in a restaurant and they eat their soup with a fork. (laughs) And you think to yourself, I can't believe it. What a clod! I knew this person was a clod. What kind of an idiot eats their food with a fork? Their soup with a fork. It's another story. You're in love with somebody, you have a relationship, it's wonderful, you've just fallen in love with them. You spend the day together, you go to the beach, you have a picnic lunch you are romantic you listen to the waves you take a nap together you get up you write recite poetry you watch the sunset you get in the car you drive home you stop in a restaurant they eat that soup with a fork you say to yourself isn't that cute they're eating that soup with a fork it is totally in the eye of the beholder a virgin Joseph's story last night was so wonderful because it points out that what happens, our responses to people, happen entirely in here. They don't happen anywhere else. Here is where they happen. In terms of aversion as an energy that's troublesome in the mind, some people have that as the principal troublesome energy. If you ask people, I always ask people, you may start to ask people, you'll tell them these five energies and you'll say, which is your most... Principal difficult energy. Everybody knows what there is. Everybody has all of them, but somebody, everybody has one more difficult than the other. Some people have a short fuse. They have more aversive energy than other people. I think it's partially biologically mitigated. That's probably karmic. It's probably a lot depends on how you grow up and your childhood and your experiences. People who are easily irritated comes out and retreats, with, one notices that one's mind is grumbling. Same old cereal, same old turnips, <laughs> grumbling about the same old person coming in late to the sitting, person coughing all the time, they shouldn't cough in the hall, if they have a cold they should be in their room coughing in their <laughs> room. Probably everybody is laughing because they've had that thought. The person who is unaware of aversion as a mind element, as an energy, becomes more and more entrenched in the aversion as a worldview and as a truth, rather than seeing it as a passing state of mind. And then actually, eventually, it becomes such a truth of life that an opinion is formed that's either life is awful or I'm a terrible person. I'm really angry. I, I hear it a lot where people say to me, I am filled with anger, and I think I wonder where. I mean, there's no place to be filled with anger in there. Anger comes and goes. It doesn't fill us up and stay in there. It's much different if we can say about me, uh, even a person for whom it's a, it's their most difficult energy person is able to say, you know, I have a short fuse, aversion is my biggest difficulty, so I have to work with it, especially hard. That has no uh, moral sense about it, any more than a person might say, you know, I was born with one leg shorter than the other, so I put a lift in one shoe so that I'll walk a little straighter. That's the same too. It's just part of the equipment, and there's a way of really being quite expansive about it so that We take responsibility for working with it, but we don't have to feel guilty about it being part of our apparatus. I think most often anger and the response of anger or aversion arises in response to unpleasant experience, or even the fear of unpleasant experience. It's not happening yet, but it might took my grandson to the planetarium for the first time recently, and he's five. And he had looked forward to going, and it was his first trip. And on the way he said, I don't want to go. I don't like the planetarium. And we'd had all this planning about going. And I could have said, how do you know if you don't like it, you weren't there yet? Or everybody likes the planetarium. And instead I was in that moment, not always, but in that moment wise enough to say, is there something worrying you about the planetarium? And he said, what if it's too dark in there? He said, if it's too dark, we'll go out. What if it's too noisy in there? If it's too noisy, we'll also go out. What if there's too many people? He's very much like his grandmother. I think he'll grow up to be a monk. If there's too many people, we'll also go out. He said, okay, then, I guess I like the planetarium. And we went. And what changed in that situation was the fear was out of the situation. This morning there were two people who asked questions here in the hall after this first sitting that had to do with feeling very strong energy in the body. And what I hoped to do in answering them was to address the fear that had come up with it, because the energy is just the energy, it's strong energy in the body, It's just energy. I think what comes up, it's not even that terribly unpleasant. I think that what comes up when the body starts to feel peculiar or unusual is we start to worry in advance of what might happen. If I feel this much energy now, maybe in a few minutes I'll explode, or maybe in a few minutes it'll be much more heavy energy and I won't be able to deal with it. In the moment, can always take away the fear. Say, wait a minute, fear is always rooted in time. Right now, what is it? Right now it's just energy. Okay. There's no need to be frightened, and then the aversion and the pushing away of it really disappears. It's actually the pushing away that makes it more intense. There's a kind of uh, when everybody laughed before about when I'd said the thoughts that come up in the mind about that person should sit in their room, they're coughing and sneezing so much, and then even being caught up in those thoughts. I remember uh, a very early time in my practice where I had sat down next to someone who just, probably two minutes after the retreat started, started in with a tremendous cold, was coughing and sneezing and blowing and carrying on. And each time that this person started in, I would start a whole chain of thoughts about they should be in their room, maybe they shouldn't even be at the retreat, and they should certainly sit in their room and not be upsetting everybody, and it would go on and on and on. Then I would just settle myself back again and be quietening myself down, and then they'd start blowing and snorting again. I'd start all over again, and then I started in on myself. What kind of a mean-spirited person are you? You really think that you're a nice person. People think that you're a nice person, and here you are sitting consumed with bad thoughts about this person really you see you've blown your cover to yourself you're not all that nice at all when i began to calm down i could see the fears behind the aversion in my reaction first of all the fear they'll sneeze on me i'll get sick and it'll ruin my retreat so i will or i won't but the aversion isn't going to help it out or They'll continue to sneeze, and I'm struggling so hard to concentrate myself, I'll never get concentrated if they continue to carry on, and a fear that that won't work. Once some time had passed by and I settled down, the mind was a little bit concentrated. Two of the aspects of a concentrated mind that helped to dispel that sort of ill will and irritability and worrisomeness are the factor of calm, that's part of a concentrated mind, where one thinks to oneself suddenly, I'll either get sick or I won't, it doesn't matter. It's not the only opportunity in my whole life to practice, you can practice with a cold. A quietened mind, a calmed mind, has a whole different take on the situation. And the element of rapture, pleasant sensation in the body, which really is the natural dispeller of ill will, You cannot maintain an aversive negative mind when the mind and body are flooded with pleasant feeling. It just doesn't work. So you feel filled with pleasant feeling, and all of a sudden, instead of being irritable with this person, you feel really compassionate about them. This poor person is struggling so hard, and look how they managed to hang in this whole retreat. You start to really love them in a certain way. talk a little bit about the next two clouding mind energies the first two have that opposing sense in the fa- in the sense that one of them is pulling and the other one is pushing and the next two for me also seem opposites of each other because the first one is not enough energy in the mind and the second is too much energy in the mind. It's as if we can't get it quite right. Actually what the mind is doing is coming to a certain amount of balance, and as it does that, it goes from too much energy to not enough energy, to too much to not enough, and by and by the swings are probably not so much, and balance is a little easier. So the first of those, not enough energy, is sometimes called torpor. And everybody here has probably experienced some periods of sleepiness, some periods of not so much sleepiness in the sense of needing to take a nap, but cloudiness about what one's experience is. So that one is saying one's phrases and saying and saying, and then all of a sudden the mind says a totally weird phrase, Says, says some words that don't make sense at all some complete jumble of words that really make it clear that the mind is not really very alert, not very bright. And there's a way sometimes where uh, there can be a certain amount of concentration, a certain amount of quietening down without an, uh, an amount of brightness in it, so that it stays steady. It doesn't feel too bad. Actually, for people with a good facility for samadhi or concentration, you can hang out for quite a bit of time in a kind of a cloudy place. We kind of hang out in a one-pointed way. Sometimes people do it in Vipassana practice, and they just hang out on the breath, but there's not a lot of alertness on it. The same with this practice. You can kind of hang out with the phrases, but not really connecting in any clear way with what the intention is what the nuance of intention is as you change from one phrase to another, just kind of say it, but not with, with any amount of clarity. There's a way that you can bring that clarity to practice. A lot of people in interviews have been talking about a concern about their saying the phrases seeming to them quite dry and they're very steadfast in saying them, but there's a concern about I don't feel affect, I don't really feel an outpouring of metta towards whomever it is that I'm sending this metta. I think people are sprung differently and that for some people, the emotional tie and the emotional strings that, that get touched as one thinks of one's friend or one's benefactor really are um, very easily accessible to them. And they feel in quite a, a, a strong way, and it kind of juices up their practice so it doesn't feel to them dry. For other people, and I actually am in those other people, so I, I don't feel any... Um, I don't feel it's a lack of caring or a lack of loving on my part, just different people are strung differently. For me, I don't operate so much, it resonates so much on the emotional level, as I do on perhaps other levels of appreciation and closeness. So for me, what I do, rather than feel my tie to the person so much, is I work very hard on clarifying my connection to the words that I'm saying, and my intention. So that when I say what I say, each intention, I'm absolutely clear about, as as clear as I can be, of what it is that I intend, because I know that I love that person, and I know that I wish them well. I don't feel so emotionally charged to do that, but I feel uh, spiritually determined to wish them well because I love them. And so from that place of starting, what I'm able to do is bring clarity of intention to each of my words and each of my resolutions, and what happens as the concentration develops from that is then metta and an outpouring of genuine feeling is the result of the concentrated mind. It's really the fruit of the concentrated mind. As concentration develops and rapture fills the body, it's really uh, the reflection of the good feeling in the mind and body that's reflected out, not only in goodwill to the people that you know and love, but especially and um, importantly to beings that you don't know, and love. So I really want to say that so that people don't worry about, what if I don't feel in that moment my heart connection with the person to whom I'm sending the metta? Feel the connection to the words that you're saying and to the intention of the heart. If I say, as I do to myself, four different resolves, I say those four resolves, which all essentially are resolves of goodwill, because for me they each resonate somewhat differently in the mind and body, so that as the resolve arises in the mind and I say the words in the mind, I say that and I feel the resolve in the mind and body. It feels differently to me to feel free of danger, feels differently mental happiness, feels differently to me physical happiness, feels differently to me ease of well-being. They're essentially all wishing goodwill. But each one is a nuance different. And as the phrase arises in the mind, I feel it and think it and say it in the mind and heart. I feel it in my body. Then I let it go. And here's the next one that arises. And I feel it in the mind and body. And it passes. And here's the next one. And what that does, since they're all just a nuance different, is it keeps the mind bright and alert because it's always refocusing and refocusing and refocusing. Here is the intention, here is how it feels, and now it's gone. Here is the intention, I feel it, and now it's gone. It's in some ways quite like the breath that arises, here it is, I feel it, and it's gone. I wait for the next one. It's much the same. What that does is that as it deepens concentration, it keeps a level of vibrancy and alertness and clarity in the mind. And it's a natural antidote to torpor. It's the quality of aiming the mind, seeing clearly from moment to moment. One of the things that happens as one does that is concentration deepens. As concentration deepens, one of the natural aspects of the concentrated mind is the ability to aim with clarity so that Having started with a conscious intent to aim with clarity, one develops a more and more concentrated mind that has within it the natural capacity to aim with clarity so that aiming with clarity becomes spontaneous and easy. The opposite energy, or the inverse energy to not enough energy in the mind, is too much energy in the mind. Sometimes it feels in the body like the body is buzzing. Agitation in the mind sometimes presents itself as fretting or worrying, or just a mind that flits around and can't stay settled. Apart from the fear that people have expressed here, and interviews about, I feel so filled with restlessness, I feel like I'm going to explode, apart from the fear, which is easy to address because you think about it, the idea of exploding is unlikely. Apart from the fear, though, it's unpleasant, that sort of buzzing energy. It gets really strong and the body certainly feels like it's going to explode. That kind of restless energy, unheated, makes more and more agitation in the mind and builds up more and more restlessness. Heated, it's not a problem. I'll give you an example of that. In the early days of my practice, I used to have particular trouble with restlessness in the body, particularly at the end of the day. I particularly enjoy all the questions about exploding on the Zafu because I can't tell you how many times I thought I might. Even that people assured me that it didn't happen, I still held out that I might be the first person to do that. I so desperately wanted the bell to ring on certain occasions that I hallucinated the bell ringing. (laughs) I so much wanted it to ring that I would hear it ring and go ding. And I would think, oh, thank goodness. And I would open my eyes, and everybody is sitting. Nobody's moved. Here's an experiment to do to let you see how much the factor of worry contributes to agitation and restlessness in the mind and body. When you're sitting and agitation or restlessness arises, often the first thought is, I wonder what time it is. I think I'll open my eyes and look at my watch. Somehow, as if that would make a difference, that the agitation, the restlessness would be less. Actually, it's true. It would be less. And here's the experiment that you do. You Might be sitting there, dying for the bell to ring because the restlessness is so intense. And sit, 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 sit. Finally the bell rings. When the bell rings, don't move. The bell rings, ding, and you think, oh, thank goodness. Don't move. You watch the restlessness go out of the body, and you haven't moved yet. And what you see is that however natural amount of restlessness there is, it is tremendously, tremendously heightened by the alarm about the restlessness, and the alarm about what if I can't move, and this unpleasantness continues. It's a really extraordinary, simple little exercise. Unheated, restlessness makes a problem. Heated, it's not a problem. One says to oneself, boy, I'm really restless. guess I could take some deep breaths and try to calm down. I guess I could remind myself restlessness is a mind state. It'll pass. One of the things that happens as we continue to steadfastly stay with our practice, in the case of restlessness, extreme restlessness comes up, it's an absolutely perfect time to say, may I have physical happiness? May I have mental happiness? May I have ease of well-being? And really relate to those phrases at those times. It's really meaningful. That as we continue the practice in a steadfast way and the mind really does settle down and become concentrated, one of the factors of the concentrated mind, that's a natural factor of the concentrated mind, is the factor of calm. And so restlessness is not such a big problem, there's just more calm in the mind and body all the time. So that it becomes a natural antidote to restlessness. So, so far we've talked about four energies. The, lust and aversion, the kind of pulling and pushing energy, and the torpor and restlessness, which are the too little and too much energy. Talked about the ways in which we can work with them a little bit. Talk a little bit about the fifth energy, which is energetically a little different Described as a uh, slippery energy. It's hard to describe a slippery energy. When we talk about yearning, everyone knows how yearning feels, and everybody knows how aversion feels, and everybody knows how sleepiness and cloudiness feels, and everybody knows how restlessness feels. It's a little harder to talk about how doubt feels, and. That's one of the reasons why doubt becomes one of the more troublesome hindrances to practice because we don't recognize it as just a mind energy and we take it seriously. Because what it does mostly is it manifests in a story and then we believe the story. Like, this isn't the right practice for me. I should be doing another practice or at another time this would be a better practice to do or different teachers would be better than these teachers, or these teachers are all right and this is a good practice, but I'm not all right, I'll never do this well. I can't possibly be a good yogi, it's too hard for me, I have a different kind of a temperament. And then we take those seriously and begin to be demoralized and fatigued about it. In the beginning, I used to think that the best antidote for doubt was to look around. It served me some good in the beginning. I'd look around, and uh, I'd look at a room full of a hundred people, and I'd say, well, I don't get it, but all these other hundred people, they can't be wrong. (coughs) Doesn't entirely work, though, because if the degree of doubt is high enough, one begins to think all these hundred people are wrong. (laughs) And even the Sangha as a dispeller of doubt doesn't work. Usually Dharma talks are somewhat of a dispeller of doubt. They're meant to be. They're meant to inspire a certain amount of faith and confidence. Mostly continued practice is a dispeller of doubt. Just again, if we can have and inspire in ourselves or be inspired to do sufficient practice for the mind to become even a little bit concentrated. It begins to be able, in that concentration, to hang in with the practice. There's a quality of hanging in that's called sustaining. An ability to be with the practice and do it in a way that builds self-confidence, so one be, be, begins to be able to feel, I can so do it. This is a possible practice. I do feel good, and I can so do it. And that ability to sustain builds the confidence and dispels the doubt. So there's a whole difference in practice when we recognize that these clouding energies are just that. They're just clouding energies. They come and go. They aren't us. They aren't who we are. They're energies that come and go. They're not permanent. They're not solid. I have a great title for a book. I haven't written a book, but I have a great title for it. If I ever write a book, I'm going to call it Albuquerque Mind. And it came to me, that title, when I was teaching in Albuquerque last year, because the weather changes so fast in Albuquerque. We were sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And you sit down and look around and look outside, and the sky is beautiful. And then you close your eyes, <laughs> and you open them 45 minutes later, and there's a blizzard. And then you go for a walk and all of a sudden it's beautiful again. And then you sit down to practically you open your eyes and it's raining. Or a wind, st- a sandstorm comes through. And every time you close your eyes and you open it, it's a new thing and it just keeps blowing through. And I thought to myself, that's just like the mind. Stuff keeps on blowing through. And if you live in Albuquerque, you don't get hysterical about the weather changes. If it's blizzard, you go indoors. If it's a sandstorm, you go indoors. But you wait. And it changes. And there's the same sort of sense that one can have about these difficult and unpleasant and uncomfortable mind energies. Mm-hmm. Say, wow, this is what's here now. I see it's here. Mind filled with aversion, mind filled with lust. Wonder when it's going to pass. Okay, here I go back to my practice, back to my resolve, back to the breath. Whatever it is, it's not a big deal. Sometimes people talk about uh, which is their principal hindrance. Sometimes people talk about multiple hindrance attacks. In truth, every hindrance brings on a multiple hindrance attack. You can't really have one just alone, although it sometimes feels like that gets to be prominent. I have lots of uh, multiple hindrance attack stories. I'll tell you one I remembered today that has to do with this place. Some years ago, I was practicing, I felt pretty good, felt very good actually, I was having a good time. And I felt really pleased with my practice, I was in a good mood, I felt confident, everything was going really nicely. It was a couple of days before the end of the retreat, but I'm chugging along and feeling good. And all of a sudden, I can't remember exactly what the thought was, but I had some thought about being home. I don't know whether it was thinking about... Missing my husband, or missing my family, or some erotic thought, I don't know what it was, but some thought that led me to think about, ah, be nice to go home. Unheeded that thought, continued on for a few minutes began to think about what it would be like to go home, I'd have to get a ticket, and, but I could get a ticket, uh, maybe I have one of those tickets that you can't change, but probably I could change it. And then I come into the hall, and all of a sudden, and I've been happy here, I've been really blissful and ecstatic, all of a sudden the hall doesn't smell good. <laughs> come into the hall and think, it doesn't smell good at all in here, there's just too many bodies breathing in here. <laughs> All of a sudden, I have an attack of aversion. It's not pleasant here. It smells bad. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, I have an attack of... Probably a little bit of an attack of doubt, I think, to myself. Nothing much I could do here in the next few days. I probably did as much practice as I could do. Nothing much left to do by staying. Nah, nah. So a little bit of doubt. Then, all of a sudden, a lot of agitation. If I don't get to that phone before 5 o'clock, they'll close that main desk at which they can tell me whether or not I can change my ticket and whether or not I can actually leave tomorrow. And by the time I have not heeded that thought and that energy, I'm down at the telephone phoning up. And it's hard to find the telephone, as you know, here. You have to really go, you have to know where the telephones are, and you have to be somewhat discreet about rushing off to the telephone so you don't embarrass yourself. Before I think about anything, I am on the telephone, I change my ticket, and I hang up. The moment I hang up, I see the entire story of what I just did. At that point, I'm totally demoralized. The mind is totally fatigued, it falls over in a heap. All of my beautiful concentration, my lovely alertness, the mind has fallen over, collapsed, and I have a major attack of doubt. What kind of a yogi are you? You thought you had such a good practice together, you've got nothing together. That's a multiple hindrance attack, unheeded. (laughs) So now I'll say some things about clues to how to work with hindrances, particularly multiple hindrances. First clue is don't do anything in a hurry. (laughs) Think it over. Clearly understand what your purpose is, what's going on. That's number one clue. Don't Don't do anything suddenly. Don't take anything seriously. What if it's just a mind energy that's grabbed the nearest thought as a way of presenting itself? That's what it is. It's just a mind energy that's grabbed the nearest thought. Don't take it too seriously. Try to remember that it's just a mind state. It's not who you are. (laughs) The problem is that we, we start to identify with it. I'm so sleepy, I'm so restless, I'm so lustful, I'm so angry. If we leave out the I'm so and just say restlessness is present, anger is present, sleepiness is present, lust is present, it is, but it won't be for long, things change. And that makes a whole different ease around operating with them. For each of the uh, energies, for each of the hindrances, as we've gone along, I've mentioned, but I'll re-mention for you, two kinds of antidotes. For each of the energies, there's a kind of technical antidote. There's a thing you could do, there's a first aid kit for difficult energies. Have an energy of desire. The mind looking for one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. The technical thing that one can do is one can exercise a certain amount of restraint. Sometimes it's called renunciation. Say, I notice that I'm doing that. Hmm. First thing we do is notice that we're doing it. Say, okay, I notice that desire and lust is present and that it's clouding the mind. So, having noticed that, I'll now exercise some restraint. I'll restrain the impulse to embroider these phrases more than they are, or I'll restrain the impulse to take a nap now instead of going for a walk and saying some more phrases. I'll bring some more resolve to the saying of the phrases. And from that, the desire just disappears, becomes not a problem, and the mind settles down the energy of aversion comes up really strong. We start to feel negative thoughts about ourselves, (coughs) about the people next to us, (coughs) about other people around. We do some uh, work with forgiveness, maybe. Bring some wisdom or understanding to the mind about When people behave in a way that causes us or caused us discomfort or pain, it was the best that they could do. Everybody's trying to be happy. Sometimes people try to be happy in ways that aren't so skillful and cause pain and discomfort to other people. When we hold people in that regard, say, what this person is doing is actually coming from trying to be happy, or what they did was their maladaptive way to try to make themselves comfortable. It was maladaptive, it wasn't skillful, it was painful, but it really was coming from the universally held wish that we all have to be happy, then sometimes we can be less entrenched in telling our angry story over again. When there's torpor in the mind, there's just technical things that one can do can sit up a little straighter, one can bring the attention to aiming on the phrases, on the meaning of the nuance of the phrases with more clarity. And go for a walk outdoors and breathe fresh air. And the mind and body are restless, there's a way of taking some deep breaths or slowing down. Or reassuring oneself and noticing, wow, a lot of restlessness is present. It'll be all right. I'm pretty sure it'll be all right. I can calm myself down. I'm just frightened of energy. I don't have to be frightened of energy. It's just energy. (laughs) There are ways of actually talking yourself down a little bit and calming down. The energy of doubt. There are ways to re-inspire yourself. I like to... uh, recite the refuges to myself, a lot, so that we do that formally when we start a retreat. But it's nice sometimes when you come in to sit, with or without doubt, and you sit down, might recite the refuges to yourself. It's really exciting to do that. It inspires a tremendous confidence, links one up with the whole 2,000 and more years of people who have done this very practice in the hope that they'd arrive at being happy. And at the same time, those are all the technical ways of working with the hindrance. The natural fruits of the concentrated mind that's developed through increasing concentration are one-pointedness, that's the antidote to desire, And rapture, which is the antidote to aversion, and clarity of aim, which is the antidote to torpor, and calmness, which is the antidote to restlessness, and the ability to sustain the attention, which is the antidote to doubt. It's really a simple practice. Don't really have to outwit the mind already perfect, it's doing it all by itself, it's really a practice that isn't causing the mind to be anything unnatural, it's allowing it to be naturally what it is, It's kind of seeing through the clouds that cloud the mind. And we can, at any moment that we remember that that's what they are. Sharon is my metaguru. guru. And when I began to do meta practice with her, I noticed that as I left uh, an interview, she would, as I was walking out the door, say to me, uh, remember Sylvia, be happy. And for a while I thought that was a kind of a quaint salutation, like in California we say have a good day when people leave. And then it was after some time that I realized it was an instruction. <laughs> And it is an instruction. It's an instruction that reminds of the possibility that one could be, in any moment. It's available. It only requires that we remember that that possibility exists, that that's the natural quality of mind. That the mind, because of how minds work, gets all caught up and clouded with energies doesn't experience clarity, doesn't experience ease and peace and contentment. But that's because it's gotten all caught, caught up. And in the moment of seeing, wow, my mind's all caught up. Look, it's caught in restlessness, it's caught in desire, it's caught in aversion, it's caught in doubt, it's caught in torpor. Even the moment of seeing, it's uncaught. And then there's ease and peacefulness and contentment and happiness. I love to do the, that story. It gives me a chance to say thank you to Sharon. So we can sit for a minute now. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstin at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 22, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.